So our text this morning is Matthew 22, uh, verses 23 through 46. We're just continuing on uh, with where we left off uh, last week as we're we're in this section of Matthew's gospel. And so I know the text is printed for you in your bulletins as well. Uh, Matthew 22, beginning at verse 23, and this is the word of the Lord. The same day Sadducees came to him uh, who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second, the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died, and then the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Hidden deep in the, uh, the BBC's website, the, the British Broadcasting Corporation, after you go through your local and your national and your global news and your sports and entertainment, you can find this, this page, uh, kind of a deep dive on the website. It's a section called BBC Future. And this section has to do with all things concerned about the future of our planet, the future of our societies, and the future of uh, humanity. And, and one of the features of this section is called Life's Big Questions. Readers will send in their nagging questions, and they're the big ones, and that's why I'm bringing this up. They're questions about love and life and death and the universe. And the BBC, they they go out and they find professional researchers who have dedicated their lives to uncovering answers to these questions. It kind of reads like a secular priesthood. Maybe people kind of come looking for their secular confession. Questions range from, are we in charge of our decisions? Why are some people in the world so cruel to others? Uh, Could we live in a world without rules? Is love just a chemical reaction, just a chemical response? I, for one, appreciate a place where big questions are actually asked. I think insisting that there are important questions about life and humanity and the universe is one of the main callings of the church in the 21st century. We talk a lot about what does it look like to be a faithful follower of Jesus in that post-Christian society. The Bible gives us a pre-Christian world. Uh, We have a whole bunch of history that gives us societies that somehow are influenced by Christianity. But what does it look like in a post-Christian culture to insist that there are important big life questions that still need to be asked? 
because it's the big questions that lead to the big answers, and ultimately those big answers are found in the gospel. The problem is that we live in a culture of distraction that keeps us from asking those big questions. We know this from sitting in airport terminals where CNN blasts right behind our ear. We know this because of the rectangles that are sitting in all of our pockets right now, tempting us to to binge watch something or maybe to play video games or to shop online or to scroll social media or to go check sports scores. The constant noise and constant distraction keeps us from the kind of deep and honest reflection that's required to ask the big questions. And so I think part of, of being a faithful follower of Jesus is to say, wait a second, we can't just be distracted. There are important questions that we need to ask. The most important questions of life become less big and pressing if we can always drown out the silence with noise. So our challenge is how do we communicate our faith? How do we communicate Christ to the world in a way that disrupts the distracted culture in a way that we're often distracted with as well? I'm starting here because this morning in the passage we're looking at, we have three of the most important questions that you and I or anyone will will ever be confronted with. The past few weeks, we've been in this part of Matthew where Jesus uh, enters Jerusalem, right? This final week of his earthly ministry. And ever since he has arrived, there's, there's confrontation after confrontation with the religious leaders and authorities. But all of those confrontations come to a close in our passage today. And there won't be another confrontation until Jesus is arrested. And you could read all three episodes that we read. If you notice, there were kind of three episodes as we went through the reading. And they could be a sermon in and of themselves. Uh, And I don't think Matthew intended for this really in the way he wrote this. But what I see in this passage is neatly, you have three big questions that can be put together uh, and we can reflect upon them. And that's what we'll do this, this morning. We'll see life's big questions that demand answers. So what are the three most important questions that we still ask that find their answer in Jesus that, that Matthew gives us this morning in, in, at the end of, of chapter 22? The first question is, what's next? That's the life after death question. What comes next? The second question is, what must I do? That's a big one. Uh, what must I do to be right with God? What must I do to be right with others? What must I do to be justified, to use theological language? And then third, what must I believe? And in particular, what must I believe about Jesus? Jesus says, what are your expectations of the Messiah? And they say, David's son. And Jesus says, is that all? Because David believed there was more to it, and you should too. First question, what's next? Then what must I do? Third, what must I believe? Three big questions that we still ask even today. First big question, what comes next in the broadest terms? uh, Is there life after death? And then what happens? What happens when we die? And obviously not every question uh, involved in those kinds of questions will be answered here at all. But we can walk away uh, grasping important truths of what Jesus has to say about life after death. This time notice it's the Sadducees that confront Jesus. So what should come to mind when we think of the Sadducees? And the first thing I'd give you is think of the sophisticated. Think of the elite. Think of those who kind of turn their nose up at, at, at everybody else. The, the Pharisees may have thought everyone else was impure. The Sadducees just thought they were better than everybody else. Uh, they, they, were, they were more sophisticated, and so we only hold to the five books of Moses. Everything else is, is tarnished. Everything else is tainted. And because they only held to the five books of Moses, they denied the existence of, of life after death. They, they denied the existence of the resurrection. I think you can make an argument that the resurrection is implicitly taught in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, but they would say, no, uh, really the, the most explicit teaching on the resurrection comes from books like Isaiah and Daniel. Maybe Job would be thrown in as well. 
They believe, though, that the soul perishes with the body. They also denied the existence of angels or spirits, which gives you an idea of how, how uh, honest a reader of the first five books of the Bible they were. They opened up the Old Testament scriptures with scissors in their hands, and now it's their turn to confront Jesus. And, and so teacher, remember in Matthew, that's always a bad sign when someone just comes to Jesus as a teacher. Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Well, now there were seven brothers among us, and so the first married and died. He had no offspring. He left his wife to his brother. He died too. The rest of them died as well. After they all eventually died, the wife dies too. In the resurrection, who's going to be her husband? Brother one, two, three, four, five, six, or seven. They're referring to the Leveret Law. This is in the book of, of Moses, the Law of Moses. Uh, it was given to provide economic and social protection to a widow. So if her young husband dies and they have no children, uh, the younger brother, or the next brother in line, could marry her and continue that family line. And so they come with a question. Now, keep this in mind. If they would have asked a woman has two husbands, it's a good question, isn't it? But they come with seven. Why do they come with seven brothers? Because they're making fun of Jesus. They're the sophisticated, remember? And so they come to this Galilean teacher from the sticks, from the boondocks, from the north country, and they say, go ahead, uh, give us your answer, teacher. And how does Jesus respond? He says, you're wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. In the resurrection, there is no marriage or marrying, but they will be like the angels in heaven. He gives us a short answer, but there's a lot to unpack. How many of our problems... How much of our being wrong, and I think we're wrong a lot, I'm wrong a lot, how much of our being wrong boils down to the same problem of the Sadducees? We know too little of the scriptures, and we know too little of the power of God. What does it mean to know too little of the scriptures? It's not to know the biblical storylines, that's really important. Uh, it's to know the heart of God. Nature does not teach us the heart of God. Nature does not teach us the grace of God. Our human interactions, our own hearts, those don't teach us what God's heart is like. God is not just a magnified picture of us. And so we go to the scriptures in order to grasp hold of this tender mercy of God that makes no sense. And they had no conception of this. And how easily do we lose conception of this? Now where, where am I getting that from? Well, look at the verse he goes to. Exodus 3, the Lord reveals himself to Moses. Okay, who is this God before Moses? I am the God who loves individuals. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And so Jesus says, is, is he not the, the God of the living? He's not the God of the dead, right? What's Jesus doing here? He's saying the story of redemptive history is a story of God's making promises gracious promises to his people. What does that have to do with life after death? Because our hope of life after death is grounded in the heart of God. It's grounded in the God who graciously redeems a people to himself. And so the question for us is, is there a resurrection? Is there life after death? And here's where Jesus goes. And maybe we don't always go here. Jesus would ask, at death, will God lose what is most precious to him? No. No. To be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is to be the God who cares and, and who protects, who's permanent. And so Psalm 116, 15, precious, is the sight, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Why is it precious? It's because those whom he has loved before the foundation of the world, those whom he would lay down his life for, their death is precious because he brings them home. Precious is the death of the saints because the saints are precious to God. You are precious to God. 
How do I know what's next? Can we believe in our hearts, I am precious to God? Death is scary. There's probably a whole spectrum in this room of how terrified of death we are, but there's, there's a range, isn't there? And what is our comfort? And Jesus would say, would God lose what is precious to him? The Sadducees didn't know that because they didn't know the scriptures. They didn't know the scriptures. They also didn't know the power of God. They mocked the resurrection. Why do they mock the resurrection? Think about this. They're, they're basically saying this humdrum life just continues to exist. This poor woman apparently had seven husbands. I don't think that's true at all. They're just making the story up. But let's just say this poor woman had seven husbands. And in the resurrected life, that poor sad life just keeps happening. So who's she married to? And Jesus says, you know nothing of the power of God. Because resurrection, new creation, that's not reanimation of this life. That's just a depressing thought. It is a life that, that exceeds. It is a life that surpasses. It is a life that, that overwhelms with goodness, this existence. It's not that weddings and marriage are no more. It's that the new creation is a wedding. The new creation is a marriage. Uh, one of my favorite things that my, my seminary professor, Michael Horton, always, or he said it a few times, where he said, you know, the, the Jewish Old Testament conception of heaven is not angels on clouds playing the harp. It's a bar mitzvah. Maybe you could replace bar mitzvah with a wedding. That's the picture of the new creation. That's the picture of the new creation. Life as we have it just isn't resumed. It's surpassed. It's, it, everything is a marriage. And think about all of what marriage provides is no longer necessary. Companionship, protection, promise-keeping love that will no longer be necessary because our love will be perfected. Not just with our spouses, but with everybody, with God. And so marriage at its best on this earth is just a picture of divine love in the new creation. We don't have just a picture of divine love, but we share in that divine love. It's not that I won't love my wife any longer. It's that our love for each other will be perfected. It's that our affection for each other will not be paltry. It will be beautiful. It will be fulfilled. And we will worship God together. We will be satisfied in a way that we're always in love. It's annoying when preachers talk about their families and their marriages. And I typically don't do this, but for the point right now, I will do it a little bit. I love my wife more than anyone on this planet. And I also love her poorly. I love her in a way that's selfish. I love her in a way that's self-seeking. And so at the end of the day, I am so tired of loving poorly. And so Jesus is saying through the lines here, you're going to love like the angels. Like, no longer are you going to love with, with love that is tainted by sin and selfishness. You're going to love perfectly. You're going to love your wife. You're going to love your husband. You're going to love your children in a perfect way. Now, can our minds wrap around this? No, because we have the same problem. We know too little of the power of God. And so how does Jesus answer what, the what's next question? Faith in God includes the certainty of conquering death. How do I know that any of this matters? How do I know that life just doesn't end because I belong to him? How do I know that I won't receive my comeuppance with the wrath of God poured out on me because I belong to him? Heidelberg Catechism question and answer one, what is your only comfort in life and in death? It's that I'm not my own. But I belong body and soul, life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair falls from my head. He gives me his spirit to assure me. Do you belong to God? That leads us to our next question. How do I know? 
Second question in confrontation is in verse 34. The Pharisees, uh, they heard this. You can imagine the Pharisees hate the Sadducees, so they see Jesus just hand it to the Sadducees. They're probably high-fiving each other at this point, uh, thinking that Jesus just dismantled them. And they send a lawyer. That means someone who knows the law uh, backwards and forwards. He would go to them and say, in the law of Moses, what does it say about this? And not only that, but give me other interpretations from other rabbis as well. And so this scribe comes up. He, he knows uh, just about as much as anybody about the law. And he says, teacher, again, bad start, which is the great commandment in the law. And Jesus replies, we know this very well at this church, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It's not an uncommon question, by the way. You see this all over rabbinic literature. So a couple of decades before Jesus, you have a Gentile convert who goes to one of the most famous rabbis of the day, Rabbi Hillel, and he says, Rabbi, I have a question. Summarize the law for me while I stand on one foot. Now, assuming he was not an expert in yoga or Pilates, uh, what he's saying is summarize the 613 commands of God and do it in a way where I can just stand on one foot and not lose my balance. And Hillel says, you know what you hate? Don't do that to other people. It's a negative golden rule. We might say that's the golden rule that, that reigns in our world, uh, and it's also fairly keepable, even though we all violate it too. It's not what Jesus says. He, he combines two Old Testament laws, Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, which is the great confession of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. And then he combines that, he, he blends that with Leviticus 18, love your neighbor as yourself. So what's the heart of the law? fascinatingly, interestingly, it's not obedience. It's not doing the right thing. It goes to the heart level. It's love of God. Heart, soul, and mind that don't refer to three different capacities that we have. It's used interchangeably throughout the Bible to refer to our whole humanity. It's a comprehensive picture of total devotion. Jesus says, be a God-centered man, be a God-centered woman. That is our calling as creatures before our God. And so the command is unsettling, it meets us at, at the heart level, but it's also liberating. Because if we're not God-centered, then of course we'll be centered on something else. Fear of God runs parallel to love of God, because the command to fear God frees us from those things which keep us from loving God with our whole selves. We are to live a life centered on God. We are to live a life of worship and adoration Westminster Confession, question and answer one. We are to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Why? And don't miss this, because this is the key. Because he's our God. Jesus does not say, love God. He says, love the Lord your God. We are not commanded to love a distant divine being. We are commanded to love our God. Jesus is saying, you are to love the God who delivered your fathers, and who, who keeps covenant, who makes promises with you. Set your life on the God who loved you first. And oh, how Jesus proves this love. Love the God who sheds his blood for you. What's the greatest command? Love the God who loves you first. Love the God who cherishes you. Oh, and a second is like it. A second flows out of it. It's fitting that Jesus would die upon a cross. I mean, isn't that a, a visual of, of the first and second command of Jesus? Jesus is hung on a vertical beam and his arms are outstretched. Vertical, horizontal love. 
In the Book of Common Prayer, the prayer book of the, of the English Reformation churches, this, this old prayer goes, Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. When God is first in our lives, we will love others well. Jesus assumes we're good at loving ourselves. We feed ourselves. We look out for our good. A healthy dose of self-love is just required to function well. And Jesus says that's the energy that needs to be given to others. When we know and grasp the love that God has for us, which is deserving of our whole beings, we can begin to love others well for their sakes. And so love the God who loves you, and then love whoever God places in your life in that freedom that God's love provides. Up until now, Jesus is the one who has been questioned, but this scene closes when Jesus goes on the offensive and he asks a question. Verse 42, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? What must I believe about Jesus? That's the final question. That's the final big question. Who is he? Jesus is asking, what do you think about the Messiah that you are waiting for, that all of our people are waiting for? Where will he come from? And the Pharisees answer in the way that you would expect them to answer. He is the son of David. They are waiting for David's son to come and deliver them. They are waiting for David's throne to once again be occupied. And Jesus basically says, okay, that's great, but aren't you missing something? Isn't there more to this Messiah that, that you should be waiting for or anticipating? And then he presses them on Psalm 110. It's the most quoted chapter of the Old Testament and all the New Testament. David says, the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord said to the one David calls my Lord. So David's calling someone else, Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And so how is it, Jesus asks, that David in the spirit calls his son Lord? It's not an academic question. Jesus has been repeatedly hailed with this title, Son of David. The blind beggars that we saw a couple chapters ago cry out to him, Son of David, heal us. He enters Jerusalem and they sing out Hosanna to the Son of David. So what does it mean to be David's long-awaited son who will sit upon David's throne as Messiah and deliverer according to Psalm 110? And he's no mere successor of David. He's not just another David's figure. He's so much more than this. There's a great illustration from Sean O'Donnell that I found this week where he, he brings up how in England, um, ever since the 1300s, every king or queen has been coronated. They've been crowned on the same throne, King Edward's chair. It's a big wooden throne. At some point, it was adorned with, with precious gold leaf and, and silver leaf, but obviously after so many centuries, it's now just a wooden chair that has seen better days. But one of the points of the chair is that it's huge. It's oversized. And the point is that no one person, no one king who wears the crown, no one queen who wears the crown can fill what that chair represents, which is the greatness of the British monarchy. And so enter Jesus, right? And, and, and the people are looking for a body to be seated on David's throne. And Jesus fills every last inch of it. It's not too big for him. They're waiting for David's son, which is accurate, but it's not sufficient. They need David's son, but they also need David's Lord because he is no mere successor or replica of David. Rather, he is David's Lord with an authority far higher than merely an earthly national throne. He is more just one like David. He transcends David. He is David's God. And so we think, why is he David's son and David's Lord? Heidelberg Catechism 15 is helpful here. What kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? One who is a true and righteous man and yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, one who is at the same time true God. Westminster Larger Catechism question and answer 40. Why must our mediator be God? Because he reconciles us back to God. 
In other words, we need David's son and David's Lord. We need David's son because we need a righteous king who will deliver us from our enemies, one like us. We need him to be righteous because our enemies are sin and death. And so we need a king who defeats sin for us as he perfectly fulfills the law as our righteous representative. We need a king who conquers death, who overcomes the grave. We need David's Lord because we need one powerful enough to do this work, not just for himself or symbolically, but for us, reconciling us, affecting change in us, making enemies of God into friends. And don't miss what's happening here because this will be the point of it all. Jesus is saying, I'm David's Lord. I'm the one who will be enthroned. I'm the one whose enemies are just a footrest. And yet how will he use his power? A couple days later, he will lay it aside as he's crucified. They will miss see Jesus. We will miss see Jesus if he's only David's son. We need him to be David's Lord as well. Let's wrap this up. Three big questions that find their answer in Jesus and they seamlessly go together. What's next, right? This life is so brief, and the question fundamentally is, do you belong to God? Do you belong to the God who does not lose what belongs to him? I mean, life is a paradox. I think most of us know that. All of the good and the beautiful things that we have that we're terrified of losing, and yet all of the immense pain and suffering that the world contains. But don't you long for heaven? Shouldn't we long for heaven? Because nothing is lost, only perfect love is gained. Okay, but what must I do? How do I know I belong to God? And this question at least has to go through the law of God. It does not go around it. It does not skirt it. It's not the law of our paltry righteousness that we create. It is to love God wholeheartedly and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. All of the law, all of the prophets hang on these two commands. It's like the coat hanger on the door at my office with two hooks on it. And and all of the law is an application and expression of love of God and neighbor. And all of the prophets calling Israel back, not to some kind of external ritual, but calling them back to this twofold way of God. But thankfully, and this is the point of everything, these two commands don't just hold up the law and the prophets, they drive us to Jesus. They bring us to our King. Because the law only telling you and I what we must do will not help us if what we are to do is love God with every ounce of our being and love our neighbors as ourselves. And so the law, instead of driving us into ourselves, has to drive us to Christ. Don't miss this. David's son is good enough if we are righteous, if we are enough in and of ourselves, but we're not. And so we need David's Lord. We need David's God. We need the Almighty One. We need the one who spoke creation into existence, displaying his power in this incredible way, in this way that we could never imagine at the cross. Life's most important questions answered in the gospel. The good news, and it's called good news for a reason, because it announces to us the one who bore our curse, took our guilt, swallowed up the shame that our law-breaking incurs. The gospel gives us the perfect righteousness of Jesus, which makes these two commands not soul-crushing, but now in him, in our king, life-giving. To center your life upon something that is strong enough to bear your weight. In Christ, you are able to pursue God, and you are liberated to love others. The gospel gives us a better king, a better deliverer than we ever could have anticipated. David's son, the faithful man who would stand in our place. David's Lord, a faithful God who by his eternal power and love makes us his own. Isn't that good news? Let's pray.
Lord, we pray that you would attend this word, that you have attended this word by your Holy Spirit. What we need to walk away with is, is not just um, certain insight into the original context of, of this passage. It's not that we uh, need to know the, the, the grammar better, although we, we're grateful that you work through grammar. It's that we need our hearts changed. We need uh, that longing and expectation of the new creation of heaven, knowing that we belong to you. It's knowing that you work not apart from the law, not that you shove it aside, but you go directly through it, sending Jesus in our place to be the one who's the perfect lover of God and of his neighbor. Jesus, not only the one who goes for us, but who's our king, who reigns, uh, who even now, Lord Jesus, you are enthroned and your reign will have no end, your kingdom will have no end. And so, Lord, help us not to be distracted by the transient things, the ephemeral things in our world. But keep, us, keep our, our, our eyes fixed on the sure and, and certain hope uh, that is Jesus and his reign. Lord, would you do that work? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.